Let's return to the book of Genesis together this morning, or this evening rather, to the book of Genesis. We'll turn now to Genesis chapter 22. We've been making our way through the names of God, and we begin our series already. Much of the beginning of this series has been in the book of Genesis, and really much of this names of God, these names of God revelations have been in the book of Genesis so far in the life of Abraham. And certainly that's where we pick up. Last time we were in Genesis chapter 21, we find our way now to Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis chapter 22, and our reading in a moment, I want to focus on a mountain peak verse in this chapter. In this mountain peak verse of this chapter, we are given another name of God, this time perhaps one that is very well known. It is given to us in verse 14. But in order to get to verse 14, I want to back up and begin the story beginning in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 22. It says, And it came to pass, after these things, that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, I hear am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee out of the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together. And they came to the place where God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him upon the altar. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto, the, unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thickets by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, there's the name, Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, and the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Let's do an imaginative study together as we begin this sermon. What would you do if you were absolutely guaranteed success? What if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that you could pick something and whatever that something was, it would work? Now, those may be questions that sound like they're coming from a certain white-toothed preacher in Houston, but I am asking because I want us to think about this question. You see, there is a, 
a logical growth progression here if you understand where I'm coming from. If we do something God told us to do, if we do something God promised to us, if we approach life confirming what God already said, then there is nothing that can stop us. And if we know God wants us to do something, then there is nothing, not even ourselves, that can possibly stop us from achieving what God said he would do. And the reason is, God always provides a way to accomplish his will. It is guaranteed. It is God's very nature to provide for himself. In, in fact, he would have to deny himself and deny his own name before he provided for us. God must be faithful to his own nature. God must be faithful to his own name. And God can only act within the confines of his character. He can never operate or act in any way that is inconsistent with who he is. And one way we know who our God is is by the very names he chooses to name himself. They are certainly self-descriptive and they are self-designated names. And he is telling us in this study that we've been doing through the names of God, basically, this is who I am. I am choosing to reveal myself to you, not just in one name, but in all of these names, so you would know me. Now, in this series, we've explored already just in the book of Genesis. And I understand we started this series around Christmas, so we had to start with the manual. So we kind of went out of order there. But just in the book of Genesis, we've seen some powerful names revealed. In Genesis chapter 1, for example, in verse 1, we saw God introduced as Elohim, the mighty creator. In Genesis 14, verse 18, we then learn the man Abraham and his God. In Genesis 14, verse 18, he is introduced as El Elyon, the most high God. In Genesis 16, it is to Hagar that God is revealed as El Roy, the God who sees, or as our song stated, the God who sees me always. In Genesis 17, verse 1, we saw God introduced as El Shaddai, the almighty powerful one who abundantly and powerfully does according to his own will. And last week in Genesis 21, we saw a name that is sometimes overlooked because it's kind of an obscure Old Testament passage. But Genesis 21, verse 33, we saw God introduced as El Olam, the everlasting God. But one of the greatest names that God has chosen for himself, and one of the more known names God has chosen for himself, is the name we're now in this evening in Genesis 22, verse 14, Jehovah Jireh. Now, this is a compound name. There's Jehovah and there is Jireh. And in a future such message, we will look at the name Jehovah or Yahweh as it was first introduced to Moses who asked God, what's your name? And God said, my name is I am or Yahweh. Jehovah really means the self-existent, self-sustaining one. And what a comfort that should be to our hearts today. God is not sustained by anyone or anything. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say that God does not need anyone or anything. He is self-contained in his own sufficiency. And therefore, all creation is dependent upon him, not him dependent upon anything in creation. He is therefore Jehovah or Yahweh. I am who I am. I don't need anything else. I am. That's who God is. He is Jehovah. But in this name, we see a compound added to it. Jehovah Jireh. And Jireh literally means to see. But there is another name that focuses on God's seeing, isn't there? We already studied it. In Genesis chapter 16, he is El Roy, the, the God who sees. So what do I mean when Jehovah Jireh means the self-existent eternal one sees? Here's what it means. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will see to it. That's the implication. But whatever the, the need of his people, Jehovah will see to it. Jehovah will personally undertake the cause of his people, and he himself, Yahweh, will see to it. That's his name. That's his nature. Here's the question. Who holds the future? Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? Will this work? Answer, God sees to it. Now, if we wonder, if we often think about the life, I wonder rather, if we often think about the life of faith in that way, if we often think about the life of faith in the context of God sees to it. But that's certainly what's unfolding in Genesis chapter 22 as an example of one who has such faithful obedience that while he may not know and does not know the outcome, he knows God holds the outcome in his hand. And without any understanding of the perplexities that are being faced in that moment, and without any understanding of what the coming end would be, Abraham moves. And Abraham is a beautiful picture of what true faith looks like. And then the response of this chapter by Abraham, I think, should be seen in the repetition of what Abraham says as people ask him questions. It's seen it right away in verse 1. God comes and says to Abraham, and notice Abraham's response, Behold, here I am. And so when God calls on Abraham at the pinnacle of his faith, Abraham's response is, here I am. Whatever you want to do, God. And when his son asks him, Dad, what are you doing? Notice his response was, yes, son, here I am doing what God asked me to do. And when Abraham is about to plunge the knife into his son, and you hear the angel cry out, Abraham, Abraham, and did you notice his response in verse 11? Here I am doing what God asked me to do. I love the simplicity of obedience in this chapter. He's just saying, God will see to it. It is my job to move. And so what would be your endeavor? What, what would you do if you could be guaranteed success? If you had that kind of assurance, if you were that kind of guaranteed? Well, know that when you follow God in God's will, according to God's word, 
That's the security we have. And though we live in an uncertain world and though we cannot forecast with any reliability, we have absolute assurance that 10,000 years from now, we can be sure God will still be working all things according to his glory. That's the higher purpose. That's the goal. Look at verse 8. God will provide. For whom? For himself. And I want to remind you of something before we unfold this passage. And it is a truth that if you would learn this truth, you would be amongst the best, most seasoned theologians. The greatest passion of God's own heart is his passion for his own glory. That's his passion. And God is the one, ultimately, friends, who has the greatest zeal for himself. And therefore, those who seek to glorify God zealously are guaranteed eventual success in an eternal sense because they are following what God always seeks to do. God always seeks to glorify himself, and he will see to it that he will glorify himself. Now, I want to give us a roadmap as we go. As I've heard, if you're going to get in a car, right, pre-being able to punch in the address on your phone, right, you actually had to know the directions. I heard, I heard that. I've, I've heard that, right? <laughs> I'm so lazy. I just put in the address. I don't know if you have people like, you can find my house, you know, here's the mile marker and all that. I'm like, just give me the address. I'll just get there, right? I'm too trusting of my technology. Sometimes I'm going to end up in the middle of the woods somewhere. But I've heard you've got to have a roadmap. Let me give you the roadmap to this chapter at the very beginning. In verses 1 through 2, we see the test, I'll call it, a test of Abraham. In verses 3 through 10, we'll see the, the trust Abraham has. And to keep it alliterated, I'll call verses 11 through 18 the triumph at the very beginning. And as we walk through Jehovah Jireh, I want us to see, first of all, Jehovah Jireh's guarantee for success is seen in your trial. God chooses to test Abraham's faith. Notice verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now stop right there. The word tempt is the word test. God reserves the right to divinely intervene into the lives of his people whenever he wants to and put them to the test. And he does this to determine the quality, reality, and validity of our faith, not because he's guessing, mind you, but because we don't know. Adrian Rogers was right when he said, the faith that cannot be tested is the faith that cannot be trusted. And so God tests Abraham's faith, and I want to flesh that out with you. This first point really seeks to answer the question, who does Jehovah Jireh provide for? And you see, Abraham was not a man who was idly sitting by doing nothing. This was a man actively following God's plan, and it came to pass after these things a test. What kind of a test? Well, friend, only purposeful trials have successful results. You want to understand this. God already knew the validity of Abraham's faith. The test was not for God to know where Abraham's heart is because God already knows everything. 
The, the test was given so that Abraham would know Abraham's faith. And I believe this is one reason why any of us would face a trials. Trials help us know where we stand with the Lord. This is a very purposeful test. God did test, and this is a Hebrew word test, which carries the idea of discovering the quality of someone or something by adding stress to it. Will it hold? This is so important. You know, we, we can sing a good song, we can listen to good sermons, we can take good notes, but the question is, do you really believe this stuff? Do you really believe God is in control? Do you really believe God will make a way when there seems like there is no way? And there's only one way to really find that out. And it won't happen with different or better songs. And it won't happen with different or better preaching. It won't happen with different or better notes. It will only happen through purposeful tests. And there has to be some kind of stress involved for this to be a real, genuine test. And friend, God has never wasted any trial, and he won't waste yours. There is a purpose that we may come at the end like Job and say, I have been tested, I have been tried, but I've come out as gold. God never wastes trials. There's always a purpose, and only personal trials have successful results. Notice verse 1, and he said unto Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. I want to remind you, Abraham was a true believer in the Lord. Abraham was a strong believer in the Lord. In fact, guess who has more verses dedicated to his life in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 than anybody else? If you guessed Abraham, you're right. And it is not because Abraham was weak in his faith that he was tempted or tested. I think it was because he was strong in his faith that he was tested. More verses in Hebrews 11, the, the great hall of faith chapter, are dedicated to Abraham's faith than Moses, David, Joshua, Noah, or Enoch, or anyone else. And so, friend, if God tests Abraham's faith, God will test your faith. This is a very personal test, and God is telling you that he cares for you in your trial because of your trial. In fact, I'd be scared if I didn't get tested. When I read the Bibles, I'm reminded that those whom he loves is the ones he rebukes and chases. And when he calls on you in your trial, your response shouldn't be to pray your way out of your trial. Your response should be what Abraham's was. Here am I. Lord, here I am. I, you are my God. You will provide. You will see to it. Which leads us to a third, more pressing point. Only painful trials have successful results. Look at verse 2. Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee out of the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. You want to talk about a painful test? I want you to know that this was real. This was the most monumental test Abraham would face. Take your son, the one you love, offer him up as a burnt offering. And friend, 
I'm thankful in some ways we've been following Abraham's journey so far in this names of God so you can understand the weight and gravity of what is taking place now in chapter 22. Abraham has waited and prayed. And often we read, though, Genesis 22, and we think of only Abraham. But the the matter of obedience is actually germane to Isaac as well. How old was Isaac? Now, we have to look at the context to pick up a few clues. Genesis 22, verse 7, indicates he was old enough to carry wood. We read that in the context we just read. If we go back a few chapters to chapter 17, verse 17, it tells us that Sarah was 90 years old when Abraham was born. And that's a miracle in and of itself, right? Genesis 21, verses 8 through 10, it tells us that Isaac was weaned. And generally, weaning would have taken place between the ages of 2 and 5. And the phrase long time, Genesis 21, verse 34, and some time later in Genesis 22, verse 1, suggest that a substantial amount of time has elapsed from the time Isaac was weaned until the story we pick up in chapter 22. So chapter 22, verse 6, Isaac is the one carrying a large pile of wood, which suggests immediately this is not a small child. So how old was Isaac? Well, Several different ancient commentators have weighed in on this. Josephus suggests that Isaac was 25 years old when this context of this story is taking place. Leopold says he was between the ages of 18 and 20. Jameson Fawcett Brown says he was 20 years old. But taking all the evidence, we could safely conclude that Isaac is a young man, not a young boy. And I realize that may change all the flannel graphs, right? (laughs) But surely both men, Abram and Isaac, questioned what they were going to do. But verse 8 says, they went both of them together. This is a painful testing. Abraham has watched Isaac grow from a boy to a young man. And Abraham at this point is likely looking forward to, okay, he's going to get married, he's going to have children, the the reality of what we've dreamed and prayed and hoped for is now just on the horizon, now taken. Derek Kidner puts it this way, this test, instead of breaking Abraham, brings him to a summit of his lifelong walk with God. And that's why we need trials in our lives, even painful ones. When trouble comes on the scene, we can know, here it is. Here is the moment that God is examining me. And the testing is there to help you see the quality of your faith, to see the truthfulness of it, to see the power of it, and to see ultimately the powerful glory of God. Of course, it is impossible to read these verses without foreseeing Calvary, can't you? without foreseeing the prefiguration of this to come. And this is really a dress rehearsal in some form of Calvary where God the Father would sacrifice his son. But even there we understand here, God will always accomplish his will. That's who he is. He's Jehovah Jireh. Friend, I don't know the painful personal test that you are in, but I agree with the statement that says that you are either going into a trial, in a trial, or coming out of a trial. Trials are real. 
but they are done purposefully. Who's my God in trial? Jehovah Jireh. Furthermore, Jehovah's Jireh's guarantee is seen when you trust him. And what I want to do for us here is to see the trust of Abraham on full display. And I, I don't want one of us to be left behind. I want all of us together to rise up and say, that I want to do. In my trial, I want to follow the evidence of God in the example of Abraham. And I want to give you some words that describe what Abraham did that you should do too. What did Abraham do? Well, those who trust Jehovah Jireh respond immediately. I mean, there, this is a very clear command in verse 1. Abraham, get up. And the construction in the, in the original language is actually rather unusual. He says in verse 2, get thee out of the land of Moriah. This is the Hebrew, leka leka, which means go. Like, just go. This is not an ordinary word, and that's why I draw it to your attention. This would be a very unusual word. It would actually be striking to find it in this context. But the reason he uses this word is because this is the identical word language he used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God first appeared to then Abram and said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land which I will show you. Lech lecha, go. And now for a second time in the life of Abram, now Abraham, God says, go. And like he did before, Abram does now. Verse 2 or 3, Abraham rose up early in the morning. God had spoken, he must obey. Friend, if God speaks, you don't sit around and talk about it. If God speaks, you don't say, well, I need to confer with my counselors. I need to pray for an open door. Or as we'll learn in the life of Gideon, where he finds Jehovah's Shalom, I got to put out a fleece. Gideon was not obedient when he put out that fleece. Abram was obedient when he got up early in the morning. Learn this, friend. Delayed obedience is disobedience. What do we learn? If you're going to follow God, Abram had an immediate obedience to God. Now, I'm sure his initial response was the shock and awe we'd all have. But the next morning, Abraham was ready to move. Abraham rose up in the morning, saddled his ass, took two of his young men. He was immediate in his obedience. Folks, I say to us today that it is time for immediate obedience. Procrastination has caused the death of many profound spiritual opportunities. And so often in church life, we miss because we hesitate. But God has called us to keep your commandments and keep them eagerly and without delay. That's Psalm 119, verse 60. Immediately and steadfastly. Those who trust Jehovah Jireh respond steadfastly. And Abraham didn't, Abraham didn't just get up right away. He kept getting up and going. Verse 4, on the third day, he lifted up his eyes and he saw the place afar off. And what we need to see here is that Abraham goes all the way to the place designated by God. It took three days to go. Moriah was 50 miles from where Abraham was when he was told to get up and go. 50 miles. This is a long obedience in the same direction. 
It is one thing for Abraham to start the journey. It is something else for Abraham to arrive at his destination. But he was steadfast, persevering, enduring. He went all the way to the place where God prescribed him to go. And friend, halfway to Moriah would have been to fail the test. And the only way to pass the test was to go all the way to the place God had called him. And that is still true for us today. True faith in God requires steadfast perseverance. But Abraham wasn't done. Put yourself in Abraham's sandals. Abraham was a human that had all the same kind of emotions and all the frailties and shortcomings and worries and concerns you and I have. And yet, on this journey of faith, he walked in obedience all the way to the point where he was ready to offer his son. Friend, one person put it this way, faith that fizzles before the finish line has a flaw from the first. Pretty good way of saying it. Maybe you grew up watching like we did every once in a while. We'd watch the Tournament of Roses parade. There's all kinds of cool parades. One is on New Year's Day. They make all of the parade floats out of flowers of some kind, and they go through. Well, one year, one of, the parade came to a screeching halt because one of the parade floats ran out of gas. What was ironic it was that it was the float representing the Standard Oil Company. <laughs> With all of its vast resources, it stuck out of gas. Friend, I bring that up because if you have real, true, God-given faith in your tank, you will persevere. It will endure. It will hold up during difficult times. You can have confidence in God. And when you obey and step out from faith, you are clothed with power, Luke 24, verse 49 tells us. And we are filled up. And so we can obey and respond completely. You see this in verse 10. Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. Hebrews 11, I referenced earlier, is very instructive to us as we ask this question that maybe you're asking now. What was Abraham thinking as he prepared to offer up his son? What was in Abraham's mind as he raised that knife with every intention of killing his son? Here's what Hebrews says. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. After all, if God promises, he will make it through, right? Of whom it is said that in Isaac shall thy seed be. What was going through Abraham's mind? Here's what the author of Hebrews says it. Accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Question, how many resurrections had Abraham witnessed? None is the answer. How many resurrections had taken place at this point in the Bible? None is the answer. I know we read it in Hebrews and we're like, oh yeah, resurrections, God does that. Yeah, God does that, and we're so thankful he did. And his son was risen from the dead. But Abraham saw and knew none of that 
but he saw and knew God. And he was basically saying, God, if this is what you want, I will carry through knowing fully and completely that if you are Jehovah Jireh, you will provide even if it means doing the impossible and raising my son from the dead. Can you feel what Abraham felt here? Can you enter into the anguish that rent his soul? But he never shrank away from the building of the altar to the bringing of the wood to the binding of his son to the bearing of his knife. Each act is recorded in detail. How could Abraham do this? Answer, Isaac was already dead. Isaac died in verse 2 when God asked him to do this. That was the level of this man's commitment to the Lord. And that is the secret to arriving at the summit of the mountain of absolute surrender. It's not the altitude of the body. It's the altitude of the heart. Isaac had already been offered in Abraham's heart before he started this journey. And the rest of the story is just mere window dressing. And Abraham believed God in his character so fervently that he was willing to be obedient regardless of what God asked him because the Lord would provide. Friend, I think we have a tendency to think about faith as what starts our Christian life when you first believe. But our whole Christian life ought to be sustained by faith. Every day is a day to walk by faith. And faith isn't something that's just the starting line of the Christian life. Faith is the journey itself. And faith is saying, God, if you test and try me, I will completely trust you. Friend, have you completely trusted God in your trial? God, I, I don't know the outcome, but I know who knows the outcome. And I trust completely in you. And God, if you were to take me or my loved one home, that's a better, far better place than anything I can see right here because I trust that the Lord will see to it. But obviously, we can't end this sermon without actually seeing what happens, can we? And Jehovah Jireh's guarantee for success is seen in his triumph. Faith always finds God's provision. And in verses 9 through 11, we read that God intervened and God prevented Abraham from harming his son and preserved Isaac's life. The angel Lord called on him out of heaven. Abraham said unto him the same word he'd said this whole time, here I am. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou any such thing. For now I know that thou fearest the Lord, or fearest God. I am convinced that Abraham in those verses is caught off guard. Though his hand might have trembled a bit, I am convinced Abraham fully intended to plunge the knife into Isaac. But God provided a lamb. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And here we see the climax of the story, not in verse 13 where Abraham saw the, the ram, but in verse 14 where Abraham designated this moment as a time of worship. Here's what we need to know. 
This is what this story tells us. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. Yahweh-Jireh. That's what Abraham named that place. The Lord will provide. What does it mean? Again, we know the word Jehovah as being the self-existing God, but Jireh. In fact, in your Bibles here, it says it shall be seen or it will be provided. I think between the two of them, you've got an understanding. It will be seen to make a provision for. Jehovah Jireh means God sees and provides. God sees our needs. God knows our needs. God meets our needs before we even have a need. We could take it a step further. Notice that Abraham did not call the place God did see or God did provide, did he? Abraham said, God will provide. Listen carefully to what I'm saying, because I fear that although we know this to be true, we rarely, if ever, live it out. Only those who remain fully surrendered to God can truly see his hand even in the midst of the trial. All the way back, Isaac was asking, where is the lamb? And all the way back, before the ram was caught in the thickets, Abraham was already giving the answer. God will provide. The passage we just picked apart is one of the great mountaintop passages of the Bible. And from the vantage point of Mount Moriah, we see the great cost of our redemption. In it, we find the clearest picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Mount Calvary. And it seems as though God used the life of Abraham as a canvas to begin to paint a portrait of his own heart as he willingly gave his own son to die for sinful man. I'm not a poet, but I was stirred, and I wrote this. This Abraham followed God's command, but God would say forbear. See, there the ram, now stop your hand. Behold, provisions there. Now on that mount, we see a light, a pic pictures painted there. For God would wash our sins to white. Behold, the Savior cares. Dear sinner here, don't be dismayed nor sink in helpless fear. For when you least deserved his aid, your Savior did appear. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. The scripture teaches us that God delights in being our provider. He is a good father who delights in his children. And just over from Mount Moriah on another mountain named Golgotha, a father sacrificed his son. And God sacrificed Jesus to provide the gift of salvation for all of us that we would know God will see to it. He will provide. Friend, I don't know what you stepped into this room with, but in a broken world, I can greatly and justly, I think, conclude many come in here with heavy hearts and heavy burdens. God will see to it. And you may look around at the culture around us and think it is, it is spiraling out of control. Is there hope? Friend, 
God will see to it. And I've read the last chapter. God wins. God will see to it. That's who we get to serve. And if you say, I, I, I just wish we'd worship God more, and I do too, and we all should, God worships his own worth is more valuable to God than you or ever I could ever even imagine. God will see to it. And I've got one guarantee. We did an exercise at the beginning. If you, had, if you could be guaranteed anything, what would you do? I got a guarantee. You ready for my guarantee? My guarantee is God. And I would so rather hitch my train to God than anything else. How about you? And would it be that we'd have Christians and unsaved alike recognize this evening, God will see to it. And there are many who will callously parade around with what they believe to be the answer book for their life. Only God will see to it. This is Jehovah Jireh. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your word and for who you are. God, you will see to it. Lord, this is who you are. It's the, the very nature of you. It's your very name as you have designated yourself to be. Lord, we live in a culture that is so often run amok, away from and towards, away from you and towards the evilness of their own heart. Lord, may we look at the life of Abraham and even Isaac here as two men who had faith to follow. Would we have the same kind of faith? With every head bowed and every eye closed, an opportunity now to respond. God will see to it, friend. I don't know what trial you came into this room bearing, but I know the God who would bear it with you. Would you run to him even as the invitation is given? Would you respond as God has spoken to you? God will see to it. As the instruments play, would you respond? Lord, we thank you for the revelation of yourself to us. What a powerful name that is, Jehovah Jireh. I think all the, made all the more powerful as we consider the names that Abraham probably was meditating on as he walked to where God had called him to go. Lord, may we entrust ourselves to the meditation on these names even this week.
May we trust in you, the one who will see to it. Pray this in Jesus' name.